Hello, Mountain. It's good to see everybody. Glad you're here. Welcome. Uh, my name is Ben, and uh, we're in the second week of a series we're calling The Colors of Christmas. It's really just an opportunity to look at the difference it makes that God sent His Son into the world. I mean, to imagine what things would be like for us, for the world, if Jesus had not come. And a color each week is kind of representing one of these important truths. Last week was what? Some of you were here. Red, uh, talking about the love of God and how important that is, even at a practical level as we give gifts. This week, obviously, some of you actually wore your white. Way to go. Next week, blue, and then Christmas Eve, green. Um, it's easy to think about white in association with Christmas, isn't it? I mean, one of the reasons is, uh, how many of you kind of look forward to the notion of a white Christmas? Anybody? Does that sound attractive to some of you? Not everyone, I'm sure. Uh, yes, and of course, we, we associate snow with, with Christmas, but also white is easy to associate with Christmas because of what song? White Christmas, of course, right. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. How many of you would say that uh, the white Christmas song is in your top five of Christmas songs that you really like it? Yeah, several old people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's actually, I think it's like the most, the most popular single of all time, like 100 million copies have been sold. It was recorded originally in 1942 by Bing Crosby, right? And of course, what was going on in that era in the 40s? Do you remember what was going on? It was World War II, and so I think that's one of the reasons why this song, I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, had such a nostalgic, and it just spoke to a longing that these soldiers who were stationed abroad had to be home with their families, any place but where they were, right? And the song is always tied up with that, you know? Does it make you kind of want to sing that song? Yeah, well, let's sing it together, okay? You ready to, you just kind of hop in here with Bing and me. Like the ones I used to know. Some of you are hearing this for the first time. Where the tree tops glisten and, and children listen. Well, that guy could sing. To hear bells in the snow. Ah, isn't that just a beautiful song? Yeah. I was outside in my shorts yesterday. It's supposed to be like 68 degrees today, so I don't know. We can always hope that there'll be a little snow, because we associate snow and Christmas with positive, happy memories. I, I used to romp in it, play in it. I remember, um, you know, building snowmen with my kids when they were little, you know, and uh, which reminds me, what did one snowman say to the other? He said, do you smell carrots? <laughs> Some of you don't get it. It's all right. Whatever. So we have happy thoughts with snow until we begin to remember what snow is actually like. And some of us, as you look at this picture, is like, oh yeah, there's that, right? You have to shovel it off or scrape it off the car, right? That's also part of it. Or if you grew up in Minnesota, you got to do this, get it off the roof before the whole thing collapses, right? Yeah. A couple weeks ago, my wife's from Iowa and it, it already snowed like two feet up there. Her mom took a picture and sent it. Um, <laughs> It's a lot of snow, two whole, two feet. <laughs> but it is, there is something pretty, isn't there, about a fresh blanket of white snow when it falls on the landscape or a cityscape. It just kind of covers everything. It makes it look so pristine, doesn't it? 
It just kind of makes you long for something, you know, purity like that. It's a great scene of a country scene of this barn. Like that could have been anywhere, but that, that just makes you just feel, ah, so serene. It covers the grime of the, of the dirt and the, and the exhaust from the cars. It just kind of blankets the dead brown grass and the rickety bare branches just kind of welcome little, little mini blankets of snow on each limb. It doesn't matter if your car is a beamer or a beater. When the snow comes, it just equals it all out, right? Many times I have taken off into the woods with a scene that looks a lot like this after a fresh snow with nothing but my cross-country skis and just head off into the quiet, serene, pristine, something beautiful about snow. And I think that longing that we have associated with snow actually taps into something much more important. I think that longing is more than what a soldier might feel, you know, wanting to come home at the holidays, more than just a sentimental sense that we hope there's a snowy Christmas Eve service. But I think it taps into something that we hope happens in our own life. I think, I think we want to have happen in our own lives what happens to a field when it gets blanketed with a fresh coat of snow. We long to be innocent and pure. And as we consider things in our past that we wish we hadn't said or done, things about us that have become just who we are now, that we wish could be made pure again, whole again, clean again, I think there's a longing that every one of us has. And so this idea of I'm dreaming of a white Christmas is more than a sentimental song. It really speaks to something very deep that all of us have. And so it turns out this idea of white Christmas is also in the Bible. You may not be surprised at that. Uh, it's actually a prominent theme all throughout. 700 years before Jesus arrived, when, when God first crashed into planet Earth with himself in the form of a baby called Christmas, 700 years earlier, God spoke to his people through a prophet named Isaiah. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to open to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. If you've got your Palm Pilot or your version or, or Bible app, whatever. If you don't have a Bible for your own, grab one on the way out today. We'll give you one uh, for free today. But at, at 700 years before, we come to Saul, uh, Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 18, that says this. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though your sins are as red as crimson, they can be white as wool. And there it is, white as snow, the dream that each of us has right there in the Bible. Now, you may think, now those people that he's talking to there, when he says, though you have a lot of sin that's red as scarlet, they, they can be white as snow, they must have been pretty good people for God to make a promise like that. They must have been pretty near God. They must have been almost sin-free to have something like that possible for them, right? Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. I'd like you to look with me for a moment at Isaiah chapter 1 uh, there because God is speaking to people a lot like us who kind of want to walk with God but have kind of forgotten some of what it means to do that. People like us who, on the one hand, say, I, I love God, I, I respect God, I, I want to serve God, but then kind of go our own way sometimes. And God in chapter 1 of Isaiah is sort of calling them out. And by extension, as we hear from this prophet, I think we're going to feel God calling us out a little bit because what God is really after is relationship. And he had said, I will be faithful to you. Now, will you be faithful to me? And they said, deal. 
But then they began to stray. At first, just a little bit. And then they don't notice. And, and, then, and then they just get used to it. And then everybody else is, is lowering their standards. And so they lowered their standards too. And before long, they find themselves in a place where God recognizes what they don't. And that is that the relationship with God is ruptured. God cares about relationship. And when it gets severed or there's a wedge there... He needs to do what he does in Isaiah 1. He gives a kind of a wake-up call. He had given some love to them consistently, and they had just sort of taken that for granted. He'd given them sort of some disasters in their life to wake them up, and they sort of ignored those too. And so here what God does is he invokes uh, legal terminology. It's like God saying, okay, we're going to go to court. I'm going to take you to court in a way. And so in verse 2, he calls in all of heaven and earth as his witnesses for what's going to proceed. Verse 2, listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. He's going to, he's going to call, bring some charges against his people. And, and, we're, and, and creation is witnesses of it. And you can just feel God's heart breaking as he says, the children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. I've loved you like a good father. You've just risen up and turned on me. It's more than that they're guilty of breaching the contract with God. It's that the relationship is ruptured. And when we stray from God, it grieves God. It's not just that it's wrong. It's that it saddens the heart of God. Because relationship is what we're made for. And so God cares about that and speaks and you can start to sense here that these words are more than just words to a bunch of other people way back when but as god word god's word comes to us today it's living and speaks to us about our own tendency to stray from god today i mean see if this doesn't sound personal when god says in verse three even an ox knows its owner and a donkey recognizes its master's care. But you, Israel, don't even know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. God compares us sometimes to stubborn farm animals, dumber than a donkey. Insert your own colloquialism there if you wish. Even an ox has more loyalty and respect for its master than you have been showing me, God says. I've taken care of you, I've guided you, I've helped you, I've loved you, I've been nothing but faithful, and you act like you don't even know me sometimes. What's up with that? And so we begin to see, feel the gravity and the hard word. And I know this is a hard word for us today, but trust me, friends, if we want real hope, if we want real healing in our lives, you can't get to hope and healing without going through the hurt and the hard. Let me say that again. If you want real hope, and real healing, you can't get what you really, really need and want without going through the hurt and the hard. And so God puts a hurt on here, and he says some hard things. He says it like it is because he knows that's what's needed. And so in verse 4, it feels to me very heavy and like an indictment on me and you when he just says it's sin, how sinful you are. And some of us identify. We know what it's like to be laden with a burden of guilt, to feel that because of evil things we've done. They can be described no other way as evil. 
Because we're children also given to corruption who have forsaken the Lord. He says they made a mockery of God. They've mocked God. When you don't take God seriously, when you don't think he's a force to be reckoned with, that's, that's mocking God. And it says you've turned your back on him and you're going your own way. When you, you're not, if your face isn't toward God saying, God, I want to love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to love my neighbor as myself. I want to serve the world in exactly the ways that you would have me to in this day. And any moment we fail to do that, our faces aren't toward God, which means our backs are turned toward God. And when that happens, we disconnect from God, and it's a vicious cycle. The more we're disconnected from God, the least we care about Him or want to be in relationship with Him. And the further we get in least relationship with Him, the more we just do our own way. And so this is the conundrum we have, and that leads to the, to the sense of uh, guilt that we feel while we're at the same time trying to justify ourselves because everyone's doing it. And you see, the worst thing about our, sil- our sin is that it destroys our relationship with God. And so the same Isaiah would say in chapter 53, verse 6, what we all know to be true from our own experience, and that is that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Another dumb farm animal illustration. Each of us do our own way. We don't care about no stupid shepherd. I want to live my life the way I want to live. I'm going to run my life. I'm going to do my business, my money, my family, my marriage, my sex, my friendships, my involvement in business. I'm going to do it all my way. Now, I still may want to give lip service and say, oh, I love God too, but really I'm doing it my way. I'm going my way. And when we fail to trust God's care for us and his provision and leadership, that's, the Bible calls that sin. Nobody likes that word. You don't like me using it right now, especially since I'm applying it to you and me. Romans 3.23 says it's all of us. We've compiled a long and sorry record of, as sinners and proved that we're utterly incapable of living the glorious lives that God desires for us. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look, I know this is hard and unpleasant. It's Christmas. Some of you are like new to the church. You're like, oh, great. This number one of those churches is going to make me feel like trash every weekend. You wish I'd just stand up here and show pictures of puppies by the tree and give you a cup of hot chocolate with nice whipped cream on top. I get that. I'd like that too. But there's no real peace if you just say peace when there is no peace. There's no real joy just sort of putting on a happy face, ignoring reality. There's no hope if we don't push through the hard and the hurt. And here's the truth. There's no real joy or peace or hope until we get one thing absolutely straight, and that is that this hard, harsh unpopular word for these people back then is the exact same hard, harsh, unpopular word that you and I need today. Because it describes us every bit as much as it describes them. And we don't like to admit it. And some of us, even in this moment, are resisting it with all of our might. Our pride rises up. Our shame tries to protect us from, from, from it. But I have to come to terms with the fact that my sinful nature, my flesh, loves leading me away from God. And sometimes I love it too. And that's just the way I go and what I do. And it's not someone else's fault. It's pretty easy to spot all this stuff in someone else, isn't it? Like a little boy who wrote a letter to Santa. Dear Santa, there are three little boys in our home. Jeffrey is two, David is five, and Norman is seven. Jeffrey is good some of the time. David is good some of the time. Norman is good all of the time. Love, Norman. <laughs> Isn't that how it works? It's pretty easy to see in someone else. When it comes to our own sin, 
Well, you know, we like to think we're good all the time. And so we choose to deny it or minimize it or hide it or cover it or learn to live with it or tell ourselves it's no big deal or compare ourselves to someone that we think is worse. No wonder the Bible says that we really do need God's help to even recognize through the Holy Spirit to become aware of our sin, convicted of it, so we can think of it the same way God does and turn our backs instead of on God, turn our backs on it toward God. That's called repentance. And it's not just a one-time thing. It's like repeated. I mean, verse 5 says, why do you continue to bring this punishment on yourself. Why do you, per- this is the question I need to ask myself. Why do I persist in rebellion? Verse 16 says, your hands are full of blood. God's talking to his people. It's like, you got stains all over yourself. Take your evil deeds and get out of my sight. In other words, you can't live however you want to live. Turn your back on God and then expect to come before a holy God and march into worship and say, hey God, hey dude, here, I'm here. I'm here. You want my offering now? Can I put in some time for you? Call it all good? When your inward life is disconnected from God, then no amount of outward pious appearance makes a hill of beans a difference to God or anyone else for that matter. And so it is after this sobering and heavy indictment that we arrive at verse 18 where God says, so then come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Wow. Now that phrase, let us reason together, is actually another legal term. It's a phrase from the court of law in those ancient cultures. It literally means argue. Come, let us argue about it. Come, you bring your case, I'll bring mine. Let's go to court and let's just, you make your case and see, and I'll make mine. We'll see who's been more faithful. And who among us is going to go to court and say, I'm so righteous, I'm so good, I've always loved my neighbor, I've never said or done anything that's far from God. I, 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 all of us know how that verdict's going to come out. We're going to stand condemned in the courtroom of God because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. And I think we just need to stop once in a while and, and get rid of the sentimentality of Christmas and feel that for just one second. Just feel it. Your sin is like scarlet. My sin. You know, these, these references to scarlet and crimson, they're not colors they're dyes. These are dyes that they're referring to in the ancient world. They had a certain kind of beetle. I, for, I forgot the name of it now, but when they squished that beetle, that's how they would derive this blood red dye that they would then apply to the fabrics and rugs and clothing they would wear to dye them red. And it would so penetrate the fibers of that fabric, it was indelible, it was permanent. Though your sins be stained, permanently into who you are that, so, that they can never be removed. That's what, that's what the Bible is saying here. That's what sin is like. It's not a temporary thing. We think it's a moment, it's a thing, it just happens and it's gone. No. That's not the way it is. And if we're honest, we know it. We feel it. And that's why we long for a white Christmas. And we've all got some stains on us, don't we? The person next to you does, you do. When I was in eighth grade, I, um, I wanted to get a job at a Hardy's restaurant. They have one right behind our house. You know that um, five-star chain of restaurants that uh, serves fast food. My sister had a job there, so I thought I had a shoe in. I wanted to go and get, just get the job, the gig, mowing their lawn. 
because that was going to be some easy money, I thought. So I went one day after school with my friend Dave to talk to the manager. Had an appointment, a little interview, right? Eighth grade. So we go there. I go like half an hour early just to make sure I'm there on time. I want to make a good impression. And I'm there, and we order some fries. We're eating fries at the table waiting for this meeting to come up. Well, with like two minutes before the meeting, my friend Dave, we're, getting, we're cleaning up. And, and my friend Dave, he, you know these little red uh, ketchup packets? You know what I'm talking about? You know where I'm going with this, right? There's one sitting on the table right between us. And Dave, just for some inexplicable reason, he looks at that. I'm like, what? He goes, oh. And then he just goes, just like that. And the thing rockets out of there like a grenade. I, got, I, I looked like I got shot by a machine gun. Bup, 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 bup. I, got, I got red dots all over me. I got a big old thing. I'm like, oh, no. What am I going to do? I'm like, I'm grabbing napkins. I'm like, you know, I'm just like, oh, it's all, oh, it's like, it's like, oh no, what am I gonna do? I'm like running to the bathroom, I can't. So it's like, Dave, I'm like, I, I smear it all into my shirt. And then I'm like, Dave, take your shirt off. He's like, I don't have a t-shirt on. So I don't care, I took it off, you know, and I covered it up and I washed my hands. And I went into that interview a couple minutes late, you know. He's probably thinking, why does this kid smell like tomatoes? And it's like, <laughs> he's wearing essence of Heinz or something. Why is that? <laughs> but you know what, I got the job, so it all works out. Here's what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying your sins are like that. Your sins are like that. Our souls may appear, we may want them to be and, and wish for a nice white shirt, but we all go our own way. So I don't care who you are or how good you think you appear on the outside. The truth is that happened. Oh, no. Just a second. Don't worry, I can clean that up. Yeah, just a second. Yeah. See, friends, sin, sin isn't minor. It's major. It's not temporary. You can't wipe it away like you're flicking off lint. It's like all you, the best you can do is hope to hide it but you still stink. I have a friend who's going through a really hard time, in large part because of some past life choices he's made and the consequences of those sins are still, still punishing him in a certain way. And he finds himself in just a habitual way of living that's not doing him or anyone any good. And he said to me, maybe if I just moved far away, just got a fresh start, you know? Would that be a good idea, Ben? Can you relate to how he feels? I'm like, dude, your, sh your shirt goes with you. No, that doesn't automatically fix anything. You know, at home when we have a stain on a shirt or a rug or something, we automatically reach for all these cleaning supplies that we think are going to be just miracles and take care of it. And I think we do the same thing, you know, with our sin, with our spiritual well-being. We think there's this, these solutions. You know, we reach for things like pledge. You know, it's like whenever we sin, we sort of like, well, okay, I'm, I, I promise I'll never do it again. I make a pledge before God. I'm really sorry. I'll never do it again. And we make these promises. I'll stop using porn. I'll never, I'll, I won't lose my temper again. I'll, I'll quit cheating or whatever. And we just, we say, I'm going to really start living for you, God. But when we do that, we just pledge to sort of get things looking lemony, shiny on our own. It's just a, a, a thing we're trying to do in our own strength. And we know as we say it that we're not strong enough to do it. Sin is addiction. Addiction is sin, and, and it's just going to keep coming back. It's not going to go away, and the stains are still there. 
no matter how much you pledge and promise that you're going to be different. Or sometimes we reach for not uh, lime away, we reach for blame away, right? Blame away. I just blame everyone else, not my fault. If you, knew, if you know my parents, if you'd been married to my wife, sure I have a lust problem, but if she would just, you know, or we just kind of blame it on somebody, everyone fudges numbers at work. If you knew the girls, it's the way they are. You know, it's the way my family is. It's not my fault. I'm better than so-and-so. We just blame it away. That's what we want to do. We think that's going to somehow solve everything. Or we don't, we reach for, instead of resolve, we reach for absolve. We hope someone's just going to absolve me of my sin. I can do some spiritual penance, some push-ups, spiritually speaking, and that will somehow, so maybe someone will wave a wand. Maybe you thought that's what I would do for you today, is I, you came in here with your sin and your guilt and your burden, and I would just say something magical over you, and then you'd go out of here clean and forgiven. I can't do that for you. Or, or, or we reach for not Windex, but Syndex, you know? Like the, yeah, yeah, that's just going to be mad. That'll do it. You know, just spray a little of that on there. You know, like that guy in the, uh, the big fat Greek wedding, he thought Windex was the answer to everything. Well, you know, sometimes we think Syndex, you know, just if we just do some good deeds, if we do some good works, and I, and I kind of drop, you know, I drop on a nickel in the bucket when I go into Walmart, and, uh, and I, I go to church once in a while. We think we can, you know, I, I go to church, you know, because the ravens aren't any good anyway. Why do I want to, you know, whatever. <laughs> we think we can buy God's happiness somehow. The only problem with Syndex approach and doing good deeds to outdo all the bad is, is that in that same section of Scripture where God's talking to His people, verse 11, He actually says to these people who are living this dual life, He just says, man, the multitude of your sacrifices coming to church and says, what are they to me, says the Lord? You think I want your empty rituals? I don't. Verse 13, stop bringing me meaningless gifts in worship. The incense of your offering, it disgusts me. I want no more of your pious meetings when you lift up your hands in prayer because I'm not even going to look or listen to you. Those blood-stained hands of yours, don't stop. Just listen, their problem was not that they had sinned. Their problem was that they were pretending they hadn't. Your problem is not that you have a stain on your shirt, that you have some mis mistake or regret or you've run from God or turned yourself away or haven't lived and loved God fully with your whole heart. That's not your problem. Your problem and mine is when we pretend that that's not the case. When we pretend that everything's well. None of these solutions work. Pledging and promising we'll never do it again and blaming someone else and doing some spiritual penance and push-ups for someone or, you know, just trying to outdo are bad with good. Moving away is not going to make it vanish. Getting older doesn't make it go away. It just makes it sink in more deeper. I know all this sounds like bad news and it's kind of hard. But friend, there's only one reason I came today. And that is to tell you some very, very good news. And the good news is this, that that sin stain on your soul, it's real. It's as real as the stain on my shirt. And it is deep and it is dark and there's nothing you can do about it. All, the best you can do is hide it and live with the stink. But God can cleanse it. God can cleanse it. And you can live in a way that is pure and clean and righteous before a holy God again. You can be made whole despite who you are or what you've done. However deep the stain might have gone, God can cleanse it and he can blanket your life with forgiveness the same way Fresh three inches of snow covers a muddy pasture. Though your sin be as ketchup stains, 
you can be white as snow. God's anger doesn't last forever. His love always breaks through because of the relationship he longs for. He can't help himself. He's like, oh, doggone it. His love always breaks through for anyone whose heart turns toward him. A broken and contrite heart, he will not turn away. And so our job is to simply turn on our self-reliant, stubborn, pride-filled heels toward God, show him that we see what he has known, and return to him, and his arms are open, and the forgiveness of God is for you. When we're done pretending, whatever darkness we find ourselves in, Isaiah, the same prophet now, just a little bit after that, chapter 9 says, whatever darkness, oh, don't despair. Verse 1 of chapter 9, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. This is hundreds of years before Jesus, but saying something's going to happen. Verse 6, what is it? Well, it's a child. A child is born. A son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Yes. And that baby grows up and becomes a man who, as Isaiah himself would describe later, one who, in verse 5 of 53, was pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah said he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought peace to us finally got put on him. By his wounds, we get healed. What a deal. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. We know that. Each of us has turned to our own way. Who doesn't know that? That's the bad news. Here's the good news, friends, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Wow. So many of us are afraid of God. We think God is angry or ticked that you wrecked your shirt. It's like, no. Friend, God sent an angel one night, Luke chapter 2, verse 10, to say, I bring you good news of great joy for all y'all. That means you right now. Because in the city of David, what? What's the word? A Savior has been born, and He is Christ the Lord. That's good news. You don't have to dream about a white Christmas. You can have one. You can have one. I think it's so important and interesting that the angel said, to you in the town of David, a Savior is born. Of all the titles, of all the things that he could have said about Jesus to announce his arrival in the world, Savior. I mean, you might have thought the angel would say, to you in the city of David, is born this day a king, a king of kings and lord of lords because that doggone Herod is not the king and Caesar's not the king. We need a king. Don't we need a king? But that's not what he said. Or you might have thought he would say, to you in the city of David is born this day a prince of peace because God knows we need peace from San Bernardino to Baltimore, from our boardrooms to our bedrooms, to working with our kids and our dysfunctional families and the stress of the holidays. Heaven knows we need peace, right? But he didn't say that. He didn't say it was a miracle worker because even though we think we want some things, you know what? He didn't say that wasn't apparently the most important thing and our greatest need. See, the people in those days, they were waiting for God to send the Messiah, but what they did is they refashioned the Messiah to become what they wanted themselves. We want God to come in our lives. We just want it to be for what we want. So when they welcomed the Messiah, they weren't saying, 
boy, I'm sure glad he came to save us from our sins. They said, I sure hope he comes and saves us from poverty. I sure hope the Messiah comes and saves us from the Romans. They were upset with oppressive governments and too much taxes and corrupt, threatening religions and disease. Does anything sound much different from today? This is how people pray today. We're afraid of taxes and attacks and other religions and government and diseases, and that's what we pray to God. Help us with all that stuff. But friends, that's not why God sent Jesus into the world. He sent us. He sent a Savior. He sent a Savior. He'll help us with those other things. But that's not the greatest need. Remember in Matthew chapter 9, there's that man who's lame. He's crippled his whole life. And Jesus comes to town and his friends are like, dude, we got to help you get over there. But he couldn't get in because it was too crowded. So his friends carried him up on the roof, broke a hole in the roof, lowered him right down in front of Jesus. Remember this story? Some of you know this one. And he's there. He's like, maybe he'll heal my legs. And Jesus looks down at the guy and he says some surprising words. Matthew chapter 9 too. He says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. I've often wondered what that guy thought. He's like, oh, great, Jesus got the wrong guy. I'm, not the, I'm the guy with the legs. I came for the legs. Hey. No, and a couple minutes later, Jesus did say, pick up your mat. And the guy did. He picked it up and ran out the front door and went home. But I wonder, between that time when he said, your sins are forgiven and your legs are also fixed, was he disappointed? Was he ticked? Was he miffed? See, that's how we are. God, it's great that you can bring forgiveness to me, but what I could really use is a raise. God, I think it's awesome that, that, that you, you, know, you forgive sins and you're a savior and all, but I'm looking for a spouse. Don't you get it? What my life really needs now, what we need is a child. What we need is a new mortgage and a better rate. God, thank you for sending your son to, to, to save our sins, but I'm looking for an Apple, Apple watch right now. And, and, and if you could throw in a PlayStation 4, it'd be sweet. You see... We don't sometimes know our greatest need. Jesus knew that guy's greatest need. And that wasn't to have new legs. It was that his sins would be forgiven. And friend, that's your greatest need too. It's my greatest need. The old, the old Christmas card I used to receive almost every year from the same person used to say this. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist or an innovator. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent a business mogul or some accountant. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent an entertainer. But friend, our greatest need and the one that we can't do anything to, to do about, our greatest need was forgiveness. And so God sent a Savior. And this is why the angel came to make sure Joseph named the baby right. Matthew 1.21, he says, she'll give birth to a son and you're to give him the name what? Make sure you name him Jesus. Why? Because the name Jesus means God saves. He's going to save his people from sin. Friends, that's good news. The ruptured relationship can be restored when you turn your heart toward God. One time some enemies of Jesus were trying to insult him and they said, you're nothing but a friend of sinners. He said, your dad gum tootin' right. In the Greek, that's why it's translated. <laughs> Luke chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than 99 others who are righteous and never strayed. You want to make God happy? You want to make yourself happy? 
turn your heart toward God. It's called repentance. Say, God, I want you. I need you. Will you forgive me? And by God's son, Jesus, he will. And you can be whole and clean again. The take-home today is not that your sins don't matter. They do. The take-home today is not that your sins don't have lasting consequences. They do. The take-home today isn't that God didn't notice or doesn't care. He does. The take-home today is that though your sins be as ketchup, you can be white as snow. Some of you think I'm exaggerating. I'm, I hope this is getting very personal for you. Some of you think I'm overdrawing or it's too good to be true. You know, there was a guy back in the day. He, he was worse than ISIS. He was a terrorist and a Christian killer. But he met Jesus, and it changed his life, and he reflected back on it on words that I hope sink into your heart today. First Timothy 1.15, Paul the apostle says this. This is trustworthy. I hope you trust this word, my friend. It's a saying that deserves full acceptance. I hope you right now today accept what he said, which is this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And until you and I can say those words and mean it, you don't get it. You just don't get it. I wish I could say something nicer to you. But if you, don't, if you can't say those words that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, you're missing it. But it's true. And that relationship with God that you and I long for can be restored. And some of us are thinking, oh, you don't know my story. You know I'm worse than blah, 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 blah. And Jesus' own family line had people with so many sins and character flaws and some of you got a shady past, some of you got some lies, you ever lied to your parents, not told the truth to a boss or a friend, you, you may have a sin that's as deep as scarlet, a ketchup stain, but you can be white as snow. Some of you have been in the wrong bed, some of you made some tumultuous, big, historic mistakes, regrettable choices in life. Some of you strayed. Some of you fallen asleep with your relationship with God. Friend, you can be white as snow as well. Remember David? Man after God's own heart, and yet he committed adultery and then killed a guy to cover it up. He had such a deep stain, and God called him back to himself. And I always hope right now in this moment some of us will deal very honestly with God. I had hoped that some of us would come here with sin somewhere hidden beneath something, maybe right out there in the open, but leave here forgiven today. David, after his grave sin, cried out to God, and those words are recorded in the Bible, and they're words that I often use when I need to get back connected with God. Psalm 51. And I'm going to offer them to you right now as your own prayer to God. And as I read these words, can you let it be your prayer? Maybe you want to bow your head, reflect on this. Some of you know the besetting sin right now that needs to be given to God and forgiven. Some of you are resistant to what I'm saying. You're still like, how dare he? Some of you are open and you're saying, God, show me. Wherever you are, would you come and let this be your prayer? Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. 
Cleanse me, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Psalm 103, praise the Lord and don't forget His benefits. He forgives all your sins. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our sins from us. Friends, look up here, look at me. Look at me. You don't have to dream about a white Christmas. You can have one because unto us this day a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. Though your sins be as ketchup, they can be white as snow.